Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. I'm so glad you're here on Super Tuesday, a beautiful day outside, and the coronavirus in our midst. So thank you for coming. I'm Evelyn Dilsaver, chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors and former executive vice president of Charles Schwab and Charles Schwab Investment and your moderator for today's program. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, Rosabeth Moss Cantor. She's a professor at Harvard Business School, a founder of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative, and author of her newest book, which is book number 20, Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World, One Smart Innovation at a Time. Professor Cantor is renowned for strategy, innovation, and leadership for change. Her insights guide leaders worldwide through teaching, writing, and direct consultation to major corporations, um, governments, and startup ventures. She's either the author or co-author of 20 books, as I mentioned. Her breakthrough work with hundreds of successful professionals and executives, as well as aspiring young entrepreneurs, identifies the leadership paradigm of the future, the ability to think outside the building, to overcome establishment paralysis and produce significant innovation for a better world. Professor Cantor is convinced that positive change is possible, and today she'll discuss how that philosophy can have real impact on some of today's biggest problems, from climate change to gun safety to inequality to racial issues. And we're about to hear from Professor Cantor's advice on finding an innovative approach to improving both your life and the world. Please welcome Professor Rosabeth Moss Cantor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I am going to give a positive, upbeat talk, but that isn't to fail to acknowledge that there are big problems out in the world, and those big problems have not necessarily been getting better. In fact, Many of the problems have been acknowledged for a while and they've been getting worse. But I'm going to talk about how we can deal with that and I'm going to try to inject into the world the optimism of activism. So I wrote this book in part because I was tired of going to so many dinner parties accompanied by fine wines. That's W-H-I-N-E-S. The complaining cry, not the Chardonnay. People sat around and complained. They were right to complain because you'd have to be an ostrich not to notice that the problems are out there, but often without any sense that anything could be done. And I am an upbeat, optimistic person by nature, and I believe that for every problem, there's at least a way to get started. And I wanted to turn wines into works, have people do rather than complain. And I know that doing, being active and optimistic is better for your health. I know that taking any step is often better than taking no step because passivity is very depressing, whereas activity, it's energizing. And of course, I had founded a program. I had been training leaders. I have been working on causes for a long time. But the kinds of issues that we face today seem to me to require 
an enlarged view of leadership. That leadership was not just in your organization, down the ranks. Leadership had to come from thinking outside whatever the current structures are. And if we take the litany of problems that people are concerned about today, in the introduction you heard some of those problems, the three problems that surveys of young people around the world in hundreds of countries say they are most concerned about, climate change, number one, number two, wars and conflicts, number three, inequalities, disparities of all kinds, whether race, gender, social class. That's the concern of the rising generation. And these problems, though, have been around for a while. When I was doing my little look at history of people writing about leadership, I discovered that 50 years ago, one of the people I admired had said we need more and better leaders because of a list of problems that were almost identical to that list. So if we've known for a long time that these are major problems, why haven't they been solved? Why haven't they been addressed? And in field after field, we find that certain tactics that we think are going to make the difference sometimes don't because they don't see the problem broadly enough. They don't look outside the narrow framework that they bring to it. So take, for example, Brown v. Board of Education, a Supreme Court decision of a little over 60 years ago that ended school desegregation in America. Well, theoretically, because actually schools are more segregated today than they had been back then. And why is that happening? Well, in part because as important as laws are, as important as the people at the top are, that isn't necessarily what brings about systemic change by itself. If you don't have innovation and innovators who start building new institutions to support new behavior, then you don't necessarily get change. And so if we, that's, it's, it's interesting because today, as I'm speaking, is primary day, Super Tuesday in the U.S., and we're thinking about who might have all the answers. We know that some of the answers are wrong, but I feel we can't rely only on the people of the top, at the top. And I want to build an army of democracy because when I was also doing my history lessons, I looked back at a famous book written in the 19th century by a French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, called Democracy in America. And he was coming over from France to see what was this weird thing going on in the U.S. And what he discovered was democracy was not the federal government. He never mentioned it. Democracy was action at the community level. Democracy was how much people formed associations, how much they organized, how much they took upon themselves to do. And that's a different story of America than the story we often tell. And I'm going to say in a few minutes how important it is to have the right story. So that's a story of America 
about innovation and entrepreneurship and frontiers where people are not bound by tradition but open their minds to something new and yet also try to build a sense of community to nurture one another. So at a time when we say, for example, there's been a decline in social capital in America, meaning people making connections with one another as opposed to connections through technology, that's actually not quite true. It's popping up in different ways. A colleague of mine wrote a famous book called Bowling Alone, in which he said, oh, there's a decline in social capital because people are going to bowl individually rather than in leagues. Well, you know, I'm not sure whether bowling leagues are what's going to save a country, but I see people building social capital by fundraising together, by organizing together, by taking on causes together, whether they are cattle ranchers in Montana who drive several hours in order to go to spaghetti dinners that are raising money for people in their community that need help because of a catastrophic illness. I see a group of people, women, that were called in the newspaper suburban moms. I know them. They also included many people with big professional careers, but they were walking their dogs when they decided we have to do something about sex trafficking because there was a massage parlor coming into their suburban community, and they were very suspicious about it. And so instead of the old forms of social capital, this activism is becoming a new form of social capital, that people are getting together about how they can solve a problem that affects their community, but they don't stop there. They also joined national organizations that were trying to fight the good fight on that issue nationally and globally. So we do have a story of America that includes all of us in that army of democracy But I write about the people I call advanced leaders, and that has nothing to do with where they are in life. There are advanced leaders at every stage of life. That is, advanced leadership is leadership that looks beyond your particular organization or sector or industry or team and looks more broadly at a problem. So the problems that I have mentioned are all of a a kind. Think about climate change. Nobody owns climate change. Who's the czar of climate change? Many different organizations, many different sectors play a role. People who are concerned about the issue have many different causes or organizations they can join. Companies that feel the issue is going to affect them can take action. So these are broad, complex, multifaceted problems that nobody owns nobody controls, that have multiple stakeholders that are often conflicting, often dissenting, many interest groups that tend to have a few people that dominate the issue because over time they have built up control over aspects of those issues. So we turn a lot of problems over to professionals and those professionals want to cling to control of the topic. But, for example, education 
is not the classroom or the schools, or at least not only. Education is much broader, and there was a time in American history when teachers, as they were becoming more professional, started disdaining parents and didn't want to listen to parents and felt they should have more control over the fate of the child than the family. Well, is that an imbalance? There are so many things that go into education, including whether people have a stable, students have a stable residence, whether they are fed, why school nutrition became so important, etc. Health is not the hospital. Health is not even the doctor's office. I mean, I love my doctor, although they did send out a coronavirus notice that said, if you have a fever, stay home. Like, don't come in. All right, I had to parse that for a while. But we tend to like those in our neighborhood. I live two blocks from a really great hospital. We have some of the best teaching hospitals in the world right near me in my neighborhood. But that's not what health is. We all know that now. Health is whether you exercise. Health is fitness centers in the inner city that never had them. Health is being able to get a mammogram at a fashion store. In Chicago, you can get a mammogram screening. If you're a woman, I guess men have them too sometimes. You can have a screening in a Nordstrom while you're shopping. Think about that. It, first of all, makes a health test fashionable. But they started a partnership with local health system. Local health system started the partnership with Nordstrom because people were being underscreened in that community and they had too many late-stage cancer diagnoses that could have been caught earlier if people had had the screenings. Health is not the hospital, it's also the barber shop. A pro- I talk about a project in Think Outside the Building in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, aimed at the health of African-American males. Well, who don't exactly trust the health establishment, that's a divided city, that's a city with many racial divides and equities and so forth, and a project trying to bring the entire community together to create multiple projects, a portfolio of projects. One of the projects pointed out that the place that African-American males do go is the barbershop, and so their barbershop and hair and health, it's called, their hair and health initiative is training barbers. The pilot is training barbers in 20 barbershops to take blood pressure, and collect some other health data along the way. Imagine that, while getting the haircut, little blood pressure, a little health information, data that can be passed on to the health partners, and that's where they hold their educational convenings, in the barbershop, because that's where people are. So people are not inside establishment buildings. People are on the streets, and we have to go to where people are. And so that's health. We also know that news is not the newspaper. It hasn't been the newspaper for a long time. Um, it's not even the newsroom. News is being spread by many different forms. But if we're going to save local news, one of the projects I'm on the advisory board that I give a little shout out to in a couple of parts of my book is called Report for America, trying to save local reporting in places that are now news deserts where all the traditional media are folding by 
getting young journalists, aspiring journalists, giving them placements in those communities. And the first three, it's only two and a half years old. It's scaling very quickly. The first three journalists were placed in Appalachia, in West Virginia, and one of them uncovered a water scandal where, because journalism is supposed to hold people accountable, and it uncovered a water scandal. There was a water crisis. There was corruption. State action was taken because that journalist was there on the ground reporting. And we also know, I could take the analogy endlessly about buildings, we know that religion or spirituality is not the church or the temple or the mosque. Religion or spirituality needs to be found many places. And so it's that broader and innovative thinking. And I want to enrich those organizations, but I also want them to be the subjects of innovation, of new ways of doing things like the barbershops that are going to begin to solve problems that have remained unsolved for such a long time. And advanced leaders think outside the building. And how they do it, I'll talk a little bit about how they do it, um, how they do it, and some more stories along the way. First of all, they have a very big, bold idea. They have a big dream. The people that I've seen succeed have a big dream. And the dream is often fixing a problem, ending a problem. I mean, it's the same way great CEOs of companies that I think are good do it. They have a very big dream, a big vision, we sometimes call it. Um, And they hold on to that dream no matter what. And I like to say, you know, it takes as much time and effort to dream small as it does to dream big, so we might as well dream big. And that's what I've seen advanced leaders do. And some of the the claims, the visions, the dreams, they often sound a little ridiculous at first, um, and yet there they are. So I mention my friend Vanessa Kirsch. Vanessa Kirsch, over 20 years ago, stood in a swimming pool in New England saying, I think I'll invent a new sector. I said, huh, what? A new sector. She said, you know, there's for-profit, not-for-profit. We need new profit. And she actually was a pioneer in venture philanthropy in taking the models of venture capital, applying them to philanthropy with funds and attracting investors and having to show impact and results. She started New Profit Inc. and brought that to the world. And I love the fact, I love starting with Vanessa, because this idea of the big dream, the bold dream, I'm a believer that women can do absolutely anything and should. I'm a believer in equity and parity, etc. But I will say that the one thing out of all the 21st century skills that are so important now for the future, women score very high on collaboration and teamwork, but they don't score as high on the vision thing, on being able to put themselves forward and have a bold dream and sell that big, bold dream to other people. So I'm so glad Vanessa's there as a model. Um, There are other big dreams that I write about that I'm fond of. I'm fond of, I mentioned 
journalism before. I'm fond of an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur in Brazil. And his venture now, it's a little hard to tell whether it's not-for-profit or for-profit. It could be either, because I'm also totally sector agnostic. I think the distinctions between sectors, I realize there's tax implications, but we might want to change that too, because the distinction between sectors often doesn't make sense. It just keeps those in silos that don't talk to one another. Oh, well, we're for-profit. Um, I've seen the hybrids, the mixes, where a for-profit has a not-for-profit arm. A not-for-profit sets up a business and generates revenue. So the person I want to talk about, his name is Gilberto Dimenstein. He's also a very famous journalist in Brazil, and he wanted to take on his whole country and level the social divides. And he did say he had a little war in his soul because... Journalists aren't supposed to be getting involved. They're supposed to be arm's length. But he wanted to get involved. And he ultimately, while he still writes an important column and does a radio broadcast, he started something called Catraca Livra, which in Portuguese means open turnstile. It is a set of social media platforms, media platforms, that give people in a city access to everything that's free. I've noticed in San Francisco, where I'm standing right now, billboards for various things that'll help you get tickets to events. Gilberto's idea is we just want people to be able to come together at concerts that are free, at gatherings that are free, get free health care or diagnostic screenings, get free education, make matches with people who will help kids pass the college exams. And we don't mean the way that gets people in trouble. Um, so, I mean, every institution, including universities, are now under attack, by the way. They're not trusted, which is another reason we have to think outside the building. So Catraca Livra had, grew incredibly fast, given the Internet users in Brazil, 50 million users within a few years, and global prizes... And he got approached by a company, I, I guess I'm not supposed to say it's Google, but he was approached by Google, that um, wanted to buy into it because of Google Cities. He had expanded from Sao Paulo to 14 other cities. Um, and he also was approached by one of George Soros's funds, the head of one of George Soros's funds. And... They sat down and talked. They all wanted to buy into this. I actually wanted him to bring it to Miami as a way to enter the United States. That seemed to be a good place for something coming from Latin America. Well, Gilberto sat down and had meetings about this and walked away from all this investment. He said, they wanted to talk money. We wanted to talk dreams. No dreams, no deal. So what was important was purpose and meaning, the power of the impact, and a conviction that if the impact is strong enough, the revenues, the support will come in. And in fact, they're doing very well with sponsorships and expanding in many ways. So that dream becomes very important. It's too easy to sell out. And that's one reason that people who start with noble purposes sometimes don't complete that purpose 
or they might begin to compromise. They start a business, they're going to make a product that's totally pure, and then they sell it to Unilever. And it happens that Unilever is a good company um, with a good sense of social responsibility, but Ben & Jerry's isn't exactly the same since they sold it. Um, So big dreams, big purpose. I talked about stories how important stories are, my story of America, different story of America. Because the other thing you have to do is you have to tell a compelling story. You have to convince people that change is possible. One of the enemies of change is the dominant narrative, the stories we tell each other that say, you know, it has to be this way, it's inevitable, nothing can ever change. And so what advanced leaders do is they have to tell a new story, and they have to tell a story that makes sense of the past in a way that explains that change is possible in the future. That's what Mayor Mitch Landrieu did in New Orleans when he removed four Confederate statues. That he said, he told his city, as part of preparing for the tricentennial and build the future, he said, we can't go forward with those statues here. Those statues are a lie. And in fact, they were a lie created by something during Reconstruction, after Reconstruction, called the cult of the lost cause. What could be more obvious that that cult of the lost cause was trying to tell a story that suppressed black people from reaching their potential? So telling a new story, um, CVS, that is C with Victor S, um, CVS has told a new story. It's now CVS Health. It found in its past, and it's telling a story, that they're a health company. And instead of a company that is really making its money from selling the soda in the front of the store. Well, and so they acted on that story. You have to demonstrate the compelling story in some way that says it's real. They took tobacco out of the stores. They were the only one to do it. They thought everybody else would follow They started smoking secession clinics. Then they started minute clinics where you can go. That's another place outside the hospital for health care. And those kinds of clinics are popping up everywhere. So telling a compelling story so that you can do the third important thing, which is mobilize the backers and supporters that you need to get anything done. I'm talking about a lot of individuals sometimes, sometimes companies, But individuals don't do it alone. The CEO doesn't do it alone. It takes so many people, not only within your organization or your team, but the team you build from all the stakeholders out there who will join you in supporting the action. So, you know, we have another phrase in America um, coming from actually an African proverb that says, it takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to do anything. I say it takes more than a village. It takes a cross-sector, multi-stakeholder coalition. (laughs) Now, I understand that doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, but that's true. That's how you build change. You go far beyond the usual cronies. You go far beyond the people that you're comfortable with. You go far outside to see the people who actually have a stake in the problem and enlist them to be among your supporters. And some advanced leaders do that as their way of making change. I talk about a a banker 
who is very concerned about climate change and the oceans are his particular problem. And, you know, we also say you can't boil the ocean. He wants to boil the ocean. Or actually, he wants to stop the ocean from boiling. And his method for doing that, he had this idea that finance wasn't in the equation. The NGOs hated the bankers and the finance people. They were greedy capitalists. They had nothing to do with the cause. Government bureaucracies, who also have a stake in the issue, they didn't like anybody messing with their territories. This was their job. Torsten wanted to bring all these parties together and eventually create a World Bank for Oceans, where there would be investment vehicles to invest in new technologies that would help gather data and save the oceans, which is a huge part of climate change. So those coalitions, he knocked on every door, brought people together, listened to them first, learned from them, then brought them together in carefully curated meetings. And he runs around the world. I think he's not going to be doing so much running around the world now. A lot of it will be virtual. But that's the way to do it. And you do this because this work is hard. You need all of these steps. It's hard. And so I move toward, through all of these skills, to talk about what I call Cantor's Law. Now, everybody should have a law named after them, even if you name it yourself. (laughs) Cantor's Law says that everything can look like a failure in the middle. You give up then, by definition, it's a failure. You keep going, you persist, you pivot a little, you make changes, make adjustments, you can make it work. That's why the big dream is so important. The big dream keeps you going. The sense of purpose and meaning that not only makes you healthier because you're active and you're not depressed, but the big dream also keeps you going because you see the importance of the cause you can't give up. You need the compelling story. You say, is the story still relevant? Yes. And you need um, the allies and supporters. Because if you have people, especially from other sectors, other silos, suddenly coming together in your coalition to get something done, you can't let them down. They're people who've invested in, even when you say, gee, I'm discouraged, I don't think I can do this anymore, I'll go back to my day job, whatever that is. You need to keep going because so many people are now invested in this cause. And if you do, you can have big impact. You can change the conversation. You can put new things on the table for, for people to think about. You can have models and demonstrations that show what schools could look like if we had a better balance. You could get laws changed, because I said earlier that laws alone don't do it. It's laws plus conversations, that is people's consciousness, plus it's programs and demonstrations that show that change is possible. And many of you may already be doing it. If so, sing along. Find your story in my stories in my book or join the newly formed Army of Democracy because we're the ones that are going to make change in America. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. So our thanks to Rosabeth Moss Cantor, professor at Harvard Business School and founder of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. Um, it's now time to begin our, our question period for the audience. And you have question cards on your seats, and um, there's somebody around who can pick them up from you. Um, we'll start, before I get into your book, um, let's start a little bit. How long have you been writing? Oh, I never say a year. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to count beyond but I like 20, 25 years. I understand whatever. you've That's been writing since you were 11 years old. Well, at 11, you know, that somehow crept. I must have said it somewhere at a meeting. It's actually true that a friend and I tried to write um, a, a novel in one of those girls' detective series, so we, it's only halfway done. And so I keep showing it to other 11-year-olds, hoping that I'll find somebody who will want to finish it. That's great. That's great. So um, let me, I get this question a lot, and I'm sure you do too. It's all about your inspiration and your dreams. So when you see 18-year-olds going off to college and they all say, what should I be doing and what should I be dreaming? How do people come up with their dream? Well, you know, it's, it, that's a really great question because 18-year-olds have that issue of finding purpose, but I'm seeing that younger people, even younger, I don't know if it's down to the 11-year-olds, but um, even younger people can be encouraged to see, see problems that they want to fix and sometimes dream very big, <clears throat> excuse me for burp, um, even find problems that they want to fix. I mean, Greta Thunberg at, started at 16 deciding this was really important. I talk, give shout-outs to projects that are trying to get middle school students um, to be their community's ambassadors to a larger service project. And um, one in Massachusetts has 350 jurisdictions, each have an eighth grader as an ambassador who organize service projects in the community. In some ways, you find it out by doing. It's why I love the idea of international experiences, or not even international, because to some extent, communities across the United States are equally different and deserve to be visited. I think we should be taking young people from the big cities out to rural areas and vice versa um, to learn, to see, to work, to see what they might be able to do. Because your mind opens, and you don't have to have an idea when you go. But undoubtedly, you'll have an idea when you come back. Harvard now has um, a couple of new things that are actually sending people to do service at many intervals in their um, college years, but also is at giving people the opportunity to do a service project in their home community between graduation from high school and starting their freshman year. I mean, if we had more of that... Um, that's a step because it opens people's minds. It's why I like national service so much. Um, we, the military has, is, a, is the only highly respected institution in America right now. And um, that has built job opportunities for people. It has taken them out of a feeling of despair to a feeling of action. We still have problems with how we integrate veterans back here. But service of any kind civilian or military service builds a sense of purpose and a sense of sacrifice for a cause larger than yourself. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. You talk about that in your book. Could you give an example about companies doing the same thing? So, yeah, there's, um, I talk about a program that IBM started um, for leadership development. And I had the privilege of um, being part of the early thinking of that idea. Because leadership development in the classroom, what does that mean? Or even in a familiar setting, you're still within the building. So they created a corporate service corps. And they took high-talent people. Um, away from their jobs for a month or more, put them in teams that were highly diverse on every dimension, including international, and sent them to another part of the world where they had to solve somebody's problem using technology, which is what they do. And um, these were not necessarily places where IBM had a commercial interest. Among the first teams went to places like Vietnam, And that wasn't yet a place that IBM now, of course, everybody wants to go to Vietnam instead of China, but I don't think we can get to Vietnam either. Um, (laughs) So that was so powerful that executives, so there was some pushback in the beginning. How can you take people away? But it was so powerful and people were so much more engaged with their jobs because they had had that experience that executives wanted to do it too, and they started an executive service corps. So that was highly imaginative. Other companies, they tried to get other companies to do it. They had some partners. I think FedEx was doing it, some big banks. But still, I don't know. We, it, we need a sensibility that says, you know, that's worth the investment because rather than have people come to work and be so bored, engagement is so down in work in most big organizations. This way, they're energized, they're enthusiastic, and not only that, they have a large network now around the world. Yes, and uh, you also mentioned uh, compensation needs to change in organizations to be able to incent and reward people for doing something like that. Any ideas on how that might change? Well, it probably does. I mean, compensation, this is something I've written about for a long time, but I won't say how many years. Um, that for a long time we have known, the data have shown that when workers, employees have a stake in the company and they get profit sharing or they get um, stock options or whatever, they're more engaged. And yet, in established companies, that isn't how compensation works. And so there's a lot of things we could do that are very innovative. There are many models And um, I don't really want to go there because that's a highly political question, too. I just want to say that there are many people who are now in top ranks of established companies that might be taking a little too much of their share. Okay. Okay. Uh, So I could make a lot of comments about that one. Yeah. Um, That's another conversation. That's another conversation. So a lot of the folks that you talked about were successful in their careers. Uh, they had a reputation. They had uh, leaders, uh, leadership or, or followers. So, but you also talk in your book about why a successful career can be traps for 
advanced leadership. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, exactly. And I want to say that many of the same things apply to millennial entrepreneurs and budding entrepreneurs of all kinds. So it's not just, I'm thinking about this mode of entrepreneurial leadership with a larger social impact purpose in mind. But for the people who have been inside the building for a long time, who have risen through the ranks in something, what happens is your focus, your lens can narrow a little bit. Mm. You become more successful. You talk to more people who are just like you. You go to events, um, sometimes in places where there are interesting things all around you, but you go directly inside the building and you never see life on the streets. You've forgotten that. And one thing I did discover was that there is a large number of people, a large number of baby boomers. And while the millennials and even the Gen Zers and Greta Thunberg are saying, okay, boomer, you messed it up. What are you going to do? The boomers are a huge population that often want to get back to that feeling they had when they were young people or they were in college, lawyers, lawyers who became lawyers because they cared about justice. And then they became corporate lawyers where I don't know what I mean. Yeah, they become very technically good, but not necessarily out there for justice. And so I've seen a lot of people who want to do that. One pair of lawyers, um, one in particular who had um, been in the Peace Corps in West Africa and um, always liked it, worked on a Navajo reservation. Then he became a big deal corporate lawyer. He was on the school board, so he was doing his service. But he always had a hunger to go back. But he could go back and not just teach English. He could do something big now. And so he He was at something with the president of Liberia who said, you know, you have to come back. And so he started a venture selling affordable alternative energy in Liberia, meaning solar cells, in a country where 97% of the people were not served by the electric power company. So that social purpose, they could make a little money. It was a startup. Um, They did have some grants, so they also had a nonprofit arm. And he was going back to this sense of justice. But during his career, nobody was telling him, you got to do that. How did he overcome the career traps that you describe about you have an army of people serving you, you you, you after a while lose touch with the ability to actually turn on your computer, things like that? Yeah, that's true, because I do tell a little story because um, we have a case on a number of people after they leave their careers. So General Colin Powell had 72 people assisting him. But the day when he was in the the military, he did go on to become Secretary of State, etc. But when he left the military, the first day he was home, the kitchen sink broke. And he had to figure out how to fix a kitchen sink by himself. (laughs) Yeah, so it's true. You become accustomed to people doing for you. And while I love delegating for all of us and having lots of helpers, you can't lose some sense of direct competence of directly serving people. That's why I say, you know, I use think outside the building as a metaphor for our thought process. But I sometimes say, just go outside the building, just look around 
And there was, to stay with lawyers for just a minute, a lawyer, young lawyer in Miami, a real estate lawyer at a fairly progressive firm, but he could do a good job. He was a little bored. There was a big startup scene in Miami. He loved the startup scene. He started hanging out in an incubator and he talked the managing partner into letting him take space in the incubator so that um, the lawyers could rotate through a day or two a week and just be hanging around with entrepreneurs. And it wasn't because they were going to sell business to them. Those startup people didn't have the money for it. But it was so that they would have their thinking enlarged. And in fact, the law firm became one of the pioneers in a digital will program. That's fabulous. So you, um, in your earlier talk, you talked about uh, women have great collaboration uh, powers, but the bigger issue is they're not good at envisioning. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think women are, I think women are very good at envisioning. I, by the way, don't love stereotypes. I mean, I, in all of my work that I ever did on those issues, I was writing about the commonalities, but women are not, haven't been encouraged to the same extent. I think women can envision just fine. It's the ability to stand up and state it boldly and then hang on to a bold dream while other people might think it's ridiculous. You mentioned our starting uh, advanced leadership at Harvard, which is a new stage of higher education. I say, oh, we're starting a new stage of higher education, which also sounded very bold. We had, we did, we have, um, And in the beginning, there are so many skeptics and critics. So the temptation to make it sound safe, you do have to make it sound safe, by the way. I don't believe, I believe that radical change happens when you make it safe enough for people to join you. Mm. Think about that for a moment. There's a conservative element always to radical change. But I think that ability to have the self-confidence to communicate boldly and gather people and not have them see you as a stereotype, but see you for your ideas. That's been my lifelong cause. And I want that for men, for women, for people of all ethnicities and racial groups to be an individual, break through those constraints that prevent it. So how did you do it at Harvard when you were introducing this new concept of learning and leadership? Well, I say I... There were, it was a we. First of all, we is a really good thing. I wish all the presidential candidates would say we more often. Um, it's not just we, the people you're serving. It's we that you do it together with, like build your company. We did it. So we, I had two colleagues. The three of us hatched the idea. I was taking the lead, but they were incredibly important, not only for support. They were incredibly important for their ideas, their brilliance. They were important because they were cover. I could say, well, the two of them are interested. And I knocked on lots and lots of doors and found the people who were receptive. And even if you have pushback and criticism, that's also very valuable. I remember talking to a colleague who said, oh, she said, I have a nightmare of all these former Goldman Sachs executives who are going to be trampling around villages all over the world (laughs) telling people what to do. So I said, aha, okay, we have to avoid that. So every time you get a little criticism, that's input into how you shape it. And um, people would say, where'd you get the idea? And when I said before about radical change, have a little, be a little conservative, I would say, 
Oh, we're just copying things that already exist. Did they think about that? Well, there were analogies, but uh, I'll have to say we, we thought it up. But there were analogies. You find the analogies. When you tell your story, you don't say, okay, we're going to change the world totally by tomorrow. That does get some resistance, no matter how appealing it may seem at first. Um, that's too much uncertainty. People don't like that. What you say is, there are some big problems out there. We have a, a big, bold vision for what we can do, but we are starting with something that at least seems a little familiar, and it won't jeopardize your career to join it. And by the way, there were a lot of skeptics. Not a lot. We were pretty good about that. Well, but there were skeptics. I'll still hear one person who says, I never would have believed it. And then we pulled off something so successful that everybody suddenly wants to be on board. So there is an art... I must say that uh, there is an art to it. I must say that everything I write about where I tell the stories of other people, we live through it. So it's almost inevitable. You, we had the messy middles. We had many messy middles. We almost lost it during the great financial crisis where everything that was moving was going to be cut. We may go through that with coronavirus, everything cut. So we hung on. We found alternative pathways. We found clever ways I, by that time, had a pretty big coalition. I found a way for a senior official to come to a meeting, and miraculously, all the coalition showed up, including somebody whose name will be famous to everybody, David Gergen, who was part of our group. And David is on TV a lot at night. He hates mornings, early mornings. We were having a breakfast meeting. And miraculously, for that breakfast meeting, he showed up. And that show of force that look at all these people who really believe this is possible made a difference. And I have to say what we were doing, I think it's significant, but its significance will be part of history. It's not as significant as saving the ocean, but what we're doing is mobilizing other people to save the ocean or handle the refugee crisis or... Fixed education. So how many have gone through your program? Um, uh, well, now with, with the 2020, it's about 500, a little more, more than 500. But the multiplier effect, what we measure, yep. and you talked about compensation before, having the right measures. What we measure um, isn't so much the direct number of people, but the number of lives they've touched, which is something that some companies are starting to do too. Procter & Gamble, their mission, their purpose is improving lives. So they measure in many of their units, lives touched. And so we measure lives touched. And by that, we are well over, well, if we include Gilberto Dimenstein and his 50 million, but we are well over 100 million lives touched. And um, so if you're thinking about that wide impact all the time from the beginning, that can help you when you're actually just still a tiny program. You should uh, copy the John Hopkins coronavirus map that shows where the coronavirus is spread, but yours would be the impact of all the people you've touched. Yeah. And you just red dots great. all over the place. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to see the John Hopkins yeah. map. I'm in <laughs> denial right now. Um. Right. You talked about a Daily Table, which mm-hmm. is feeding the, um, those that are hungry from donated food. Could you talk a little bit more about that story? I yeah. loved it. Oh, thank you. It's a great story because he's very colorful, among other things. This is the former president of Trader Joe's. And sadly, the founder of Trader Joe's, Joe, 
um, passed, away. passed away. But Doug was president working with him and probably could have been CEO, but um, he, he had moved from California to New England and miraculously liked it there. So he, he was, <laughs> it's cold. Um, so he became president and he always cared about food and Trader Joe's is so colorful and so willing um, to be creative. And his idea was um, to end hunger. And so his first idea was because he was a logistics guy, this is Doug Rao, he was a logistics guy, it was to um, do a better job of getting day-old bread from stores to food banks and other related things. Well, it was a very stale idea. But what he needed to do as those young people that you said, how do they come to dream? You need to wander very far outside your territory. And so he did that. He found that the hunger problem, in America at least, not necessarily in other places, the hunger problem is heavily a nutrition problem, that people can be filled with empty calories that are cheap and found near them, but they don't have access to nutritious food. And he mulled over that, and at the same time he was, on, uh, he was encountering the food dimensions of the climate crisis because it turns out that food waste emits more greenhouse gases, methane gas, than carbon, and is very dangerous. It's why, where I live, we have mandatory composting now, which our city has made very easy. And um, so he started putting those problems together, and his idea was he could take, it's called gleaned food, because it was food that was perfectly healthy and nutritious, but it was about to be thrown out for whatever reason. Like the farmer, the importer had too many bananas, the farmer had too many avocados, and he would prepare that high-quality kitchen and also sell fresh food, and he would locate in places that didn't have access to nutritious food, food deserts, and... Um, that was a brilliant idea. And even his brilliant idea, he's doing well and he's ready to scale nationally. But even his brilliant idea had obstacles and roadblocks and naysayers and skeptics. And he just kept on going and he had to modify the idea a little bit. And I must say, if anybody who's listening is in Boston, um, they have two stores and you, anybody can go and the avocados were really great, and I think I got them for about 19 cents an avocado. I just had to use them pretty fast. Yeah, right, right. But a great idea, and he's scaling, and there's, he's going to do something in L.A. Um, they want him in New York. He got a lot of attention, but you have to worry about the story. That's the other thing. I said tell the right story because he got a lot of media, and some of that media said initially, Trader Joe's ex executive sells leftovers to the poor. <laughs> you don't want that to be the story. So you have to control the narrative. He learned a lot of other things too, but um, he's doing it and he's happy. And, you know, he was upset in, in the beginning because he had all these different ideas. And I said, maybe you can put them together. And that's what the thinking is. You put together things that were otherwise separate and end up with a great innovation. You know, I know you're an optimist because you said that in the beginning, but you talked in your book a little bit about some failures. Yeah. So could you talk about why they failed? 
Yeah, well, we have to talk about failures or there's no credibility. Um, and um, so there are a couple reasons why people gave up in the middle or there were failures. First of all, sometimes it may not just not be the world's best idea at this time and you can't find enough people and um, you have to earn a living, you have to do other things and or your company changes hands. There are so many things that can happen in the middle. And the people who tended to give up then, I mean, some people never get started. They have the idea, they go to dinner parties, imbibe the wines, and that's it. Um, But if you give up in the middle, I I saw three main reasons. One was rigidity. You don't know how to be flexible enough about the idea because sometimes you have one idea and you want to stick with that idea no matter what. And while I like stick to you've got to listen because the critics often have something useful to say and you have to be willing to keep the big dream but maybe modify some tactics. That was one reason. A second reason was sheer naivete, that people had not looked broadly enough and they didn't realize there was some stakeholder out there who was going to come back to bite them. They didn't realize there was competition. They didn't realize that all these problems might occur. They didn't have enough allies. They were reliant on one person. They were just naive. And the third reason is distractions. I see this with some young entrepreneurs, by the way, a lot, Mm. because people are so focused on raising money for their idea, they forget about finding customers. And so they go to every pitch contest, and sometimes they come back with some money, they come back with with prizes that's so gratifying, And meanwhile, I know one startup that's now in year three, and they do have some capital and angel money, but they can't go out for that seed round unless they show that people are actually paying for the product. And so there was just way too many distractions. And so the entrepreneur now says, I better stay home, get a marketing person, stay home, and um, do the hard work of getting this off the ground. Yeah, thank you. You know, you talked about social capitalism, and one of the questions we have here from the audience is, uh, this individual has used the internet to reach out to advanced leaders, but not successful at getting replies back. Yeah. Is there a different approach that they should take? I love face-to-face. Mm. Okay. I mean, I think that um, social media, the internet works when you already have a relationship and um, you're passing on information But to get relationships, my first rule of success in life, perennial rule, is show up. Um, And you got to be there. And you show up, and serendipitous things happen, too. Um, But people see you, feel you, touch you, um, maybe not touch you these days. Um, (laughs) But you um, you get some face credibility. You knock on doors. You go to everybody you can think of. You travel. One contact leads to another. So you can't really do it passively. There are some things that do, and they can grow very fast. I think the number of things that scale, which didn't have behind it a lot of face-to-face, even the social media things that have scaled really fast and seem to have only three employees and a dog and a lot of free food... um, They actually often have many coalitions behind them. Believe me, they had to go to the venture capitalists in person, show up at meetings in person. So 
don't neglect face-to-face, which means sometimes you start more locally. And whether you're farmers in Montana or any place else, if you're focused on locally and you have local users, that's again why places that have users in your community and not just investors is a really good thing because the users will give you feedback and they'll help you grow. Good advice. Uh, Another question. What do you think about Shark shark Tank? It seems to encourage creativity and and participants most talk about their um, entrepreneurial ideas in a cogent way. So I think it's a good idea to learn to be short. I personally have <laughs> short, in, not in height, but short. Yeah, in uh, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Well, you and I have tall. I, people meet me at airports say, "I thought you were taller." I say, "Well, I think very tall thoughts." Um, <laughs> I, I like um, the the discipline of Twitter, and I'm still on the short end of Twitter. And by the way, I welcome people to follow me at Rosabeth Cantor. Um, but I I like having to boil it down and write short. Now, if that's all there was, it would be bad policy and a lot of other bad things could happen because of that. And you have to watch audience and always think audience. But the fact that you have to be cogent and say it briefly is a really good discipline because it says, do we understand it? But you also have to be able to back it up with something else besides your back of the envelope few words. So... um, So Shark Tank and other things, the idea of sharks, you know, that's not my favorite. Um, I go to Martha's Vineyard in the summer, um, Jaws and all. I don't love (laughs) the idea of Shark Tank, but um, competitions keep you on your toes. I think the competitions that only have one winner, I'm not so happy about, even though I write about Sesame Street, which actually was the one winner of a MacArthur Foundation challenge called a hundred and one, a hundred plus change, a hundred plus change. Um, and they were giving $100 million grant wow. to the best social innovation. And my report for America thing of journalists being put in newsrooms is a finalist this year, but they won the one grant. And I must say it's wow. a great idea. It's That's early education for um, people in the Middle East, particularly in refugee camps. That's a really great idea, and they do, they're going to do great with the money, and they are in a coalition with the International Rescue Committee. But the idea, there was only one winner. I mean, the fact is, they spread the idea. Contests make people rise to the challenge. I think challenges are a really wonderful idea. Right. You know, in your book, you talk about um, for-profit and not-for-profit combining together, Another question is, isn't it difficult to integrate those two? Uh, Doesn't it feel like it would lead to conflicts of interest between the two organizations? Um, Well, you know, one certainly has to be careful about conflicts of interest. Absolutely true. And be very mindful of the potential obstacles that could get in your way and what other stakeholders are looking at you and what you don't want. But otherwise, you can have a very happy marriage because increasingly businesses want to lead by a sense of social purpose. Increasingly, they want to be mission-driven while still watching the bottom line. And not-for-profits, I really think they need a revenue basis or something on a continuing basis that makes them sustainable. So they also have to watch the finances, and they can learn a lot from 
a for-profit business. A for-profit can get that inspiration from the not-for-profit motivation. But if you get to be a very large not-for-profit, so I say in chapter two, I think, that big philanthropy is just as pilloried now as big business, big government. There's a real anti-establishment, anti-big, anti-institutional mood. And big philanthropy is often pilloried because they don't always get it right. And they have people who are there for a job. And, um, you know, so I believe that the distinctions between sectors, except for this um, tax thing, and a lot of for-profits are actually not making profits. And yet they had big IPOs. It's hard to understand. Um, So I believe that over time the sector lines are getting blurred, and they should get blurred, because the important thing is what problem are we solving? What impact do we want to have? And then what tools, what kinds of partners do we need to get there? Um, We have only time for a couple of questions. You know, homelessness is a huge issue that we have across the country. Are you you familiar with any organizations that are focused on that and uh, trying to attack it in a different way? Well, there are, um, in Northern California, there are organizations um, that are working on this Homes for All. In their, I, I hear about these things in other parts of the country. I know that it's a huge and growing issue. I think that um, one has to see it as a multifaceted problem. Um, it's not simply, oh, somebody doesn't have a home. There are health issues and mental health issues. There are... Um, issues of what's in the neighborhood, issues of what developers are doing, um, their police. There are lots of, um, of other kinds of issues. And if it's not multifaceted and there isn't a coalition that's big enough with enough disciplines represented, you can't necessarily tackle it. Um, I think that developers are starting to think more innovatively about urban housing, yep. um, multi, multi-use but also including many of the services that people would otherwise have to travel long distances for and so don't get because transportation is often an equally big issue. I wrote a book on infrastructure transportation a couple of years ago, and one can still look at all the data in it and the stories and say it's still true. Nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Some of these things, one needs big investments, and there one does need government, and one does need a legal structure and a regulatory structure that the developers pay attention to. Um, But still, if we hand, and I I am not an expert on this, but if we took this as another cross-sector, multi-stakeholder kind of problem and thought about it differently, I think we would begin to see little innovation surface. The other thing I often want to tap is the power of real youth and their imagination. I often say on these big problems, who's going to have to live with the consequences? Go to the schools and give this as an exercise to the kids. Maybe it is middle school people. What would you do? And can you go out and investigate? And what innovative, creative ideas do you have? Included, we need to change zoning. That's also very clear because many people have empty space, and even if they want to fill it and use it, they're not allowed. 
Well, so I have a selfish question. Um, the Commonwealth Club is really focused on civil discourse, which we know is lacking in many uh, parts of our country. How would you go about doing that? So bringing civil discourse back. So first of all, it's having discourse. That is people having actual encounters with one another. And the way you bring people together is about a larger problem or goal that they all care about, even if there are very different approaches to it, even if they're not sure about it. That's why I love national service so much. National service becomes my shorthand answer to anything. Like I go to another country and I'm sitting there with high officials and the press and they say, what one thing would you advise our troubled country to do? And I say national service. You send young people out, they organize, they mobilize. The Report for America um, journalists are actually or- organizing service projects in schools. And But if you have a goal, people may not, on a national level, they may fight like crazy. Um, but locally, if it's their school, their neighborhood, and you bring them together around that, and they get to know each other, and then they're not such bad people, and they can listen to one another's point of view. Um, So if you don't cross those lines, it's why I don't like segregation, it's why I don't like walls, it's why I don't like boundaries. I'm not sure about school busing and how that worked, but I feel that people should be moving more often and crossing sector lines and, um, and crossing lines of neighborhoods and divides. I think we could do it. Also, by the way, on the fine wines I'm tired of the people who start to cry. Well, it's people who are feeling left behind in these rural areas. There's another book out about the people that somebody went to high school with and their sad stories. I want to say, what are you doing to bring broadband to those communities so that they can have great Internet access and get coding classes and get jobs? What are you doing to bring high-speed rail so that they can get out from time to time or that companies will locate near where they are. So there are things we could do on a macro level, and there are companies that are doing some of that. Um, The former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, um, temporary presidential candidate, but Deval Patrick's um, created, co-founded the Double Impact Fund at Bain Capital. And the Double Impact Fund... Um, invest in things that are going to have big social impact and also earn a good return. One of them is a set of of software centers that are going to middle-tier cities in America that have many people who are feeling left out, and they're training and creating jobs. That's great. And I think nothing like a job to mean you don't sit around um, contemplating the bad things that are why life expectancy is down in certain places. Yeah. So last question. What's your next book? Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, I'm on a book tour. I'm, I, I can't think about anything else. Um, it's like the kids I know in my family who are selling Girl Scout cookies. I feel I'm standing here with a box of Girl Scout cookies saying, won't you buy my cookies? Um, but I mean, there are things I'm thinking about researching and doing. I absolutely. And I will. But for right now, um, I'm going to go home, get a lot of sleep, and keep teaching. Wonderful. Thank you. Our thanks to Rosabeth Moss Cantor, professor at Harvard Business School, founder of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative, and author of the new book, Think Outside the Building, 
how advanced leaders can change the world one smart innovation at a time. We also want to thank our audience and want to remind everyone that uh, Professor Cantor's books will be signed in the back of the room following the program. I'm Evelyn Dilsaver, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we can't show up. Keep going. But thank you. Great job.